Good morning, church. Our reading today is from the book of First Samuel, chapter 20. Reading starts from verse 1 to 23. First Samuel 20, verses 1 to 23. Then David fled from Niles at Ramah and went to Jonathan and asked, What have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he is trying to take away my life? <coughs> Never, Jonathan replied, You are not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything, great or small without confiding in me. Why would he hide this from me? It's not so. But David took an oath and said, Your father knows very well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he has said to himself, Jonathan must not know this, or he will be grieved. Yet as surely as the Lord lives, and as you live, there is only a step between me and death. Jonathan said to David, Whatever you want me to do, I'll do for you. So David said, Look, tomorrow is the new moon festival, and I'm supposed to deal with the king. But let me go and hide in the field until the evening of the day after tomorrow. If your father miss at all, miss me at all, tell him, David earnestly asked my permission to hurry to Bethlehem, his hometown, because an annual sacrifice is being made there for his whole clan. If he says very well, then your servant is safe. But if he lost his temper, you can be sure that he is determined to harm me. As for you, show kindness to your servant, for you have brought him into a covenant with you before the Lord. If I'm guilty, then, be, then kill me yourself. Why hand me over to your father? Never, Jonathan said. If I had the least inkling that my father was determined to harm you, wouldn't I tell you? David asked, Who will tell me if your father answers you hardly? Come, Jonathan said, Let's go out into the field. So they went there together. Then Jonathan said to David, By the Lord, the God of Israel, I will surely sound out my father by this time the day after tomorrow. If he is favorable and disposed toward you, will I not send you a word and let you know? But if my father is inclined to harm you, may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if I do not let you know and send you away safely. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. But show me and tell him kindness like that of the Lord as long as I live, so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, 
not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord cause David's enemies to account. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him, because he loved him as he loved himself. Then Jonathan said to David, Tomorrow is the new moon festival. You will be missed, because your seed will be empty. The day after tomorrow, toward evening, go to the place where you hide when this trouble began, and wait by the stone as ill. I will shoot three arrows to the side of it, as though I were shooting at a target. Then I will send a boy and say, Go, find the arrows. If I say to him, Look, the arrows are on this side of you, bring them here, then come, because as surely as the Lord sleeps, you are safe. There is no danger. But if I say to the boy, Look, the arrows are far beyond you, then you must go, because the Lord has sent you away. And about the matter you and I discuss, remember, the Lord is witness between you and me forever. May the Lord bless this reading and the psalm in the spirit of the psalm. Thank you. Isaac, thank you very much indeed. I can't imagine how difficult it must be to read Old Testament narrative in a language that is not your own. You did a great job. Thank you very much. Well, do please keep your Bibles open at that passage and uh, let's, um, let me pray as we look at it together. <coughs> Heavenly Father, we do thank you for bringing us together this morning. Thank you for giving to us the scriptures. Thank you that the scriptures are God-breathed and able to make us wise for salvation. And we ask that you would speak words to us this morning that are timely and needful and helpful and wonderful. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Friendship is the greatest happiness in life. That's according to C.S. Lewis. So it's not a sort of throwaway line from a reality TV program. Uh, C.S. Lewis is certainly one of the greatest Christian thinkers of the last hundred years or so. And he says, friendship is the greatest happiness in life. So think with me for a moment, what's happened to our friendships over the last 12 months? We all know, don't we, that the pandemic has separated us from our friends through lockdowns and social distancing and face masks and, of course, the fact that we've been encouraged to think at least twice before attending a social gathering of any kind at all. So we've had actually more contact with friends over Zoom and over WhatsApp 
than actually meeting them in person. And then on top of that, there are all the economic pressures caused by the pandemic, which means in many cases that people are working harder, they're working longer hours, and they have less time and even less energy for developing and sustaining healthy friendships. And if C.S. Lewis is right, that means we are missing out in some way on the greatest happiness in life. So it's timely and I think appropriate that this morning we're looking at the most famous friendship in the Old Testament. It's the friendship between David and Jonathan. And uh, I want us to see that there really is some wonderful treasure in the text that I believe will help us recover some of the ground that we've lost over the last 12 months. So where then is the treasure in the text? Well, stay with me closely because, first of all, we need to get the, the big picture clear in our minds. Now, you'll remember from our first session in this series, we said that in 1 Samuel, the hero of the story is not David. It's God. And as we read this book, and indeed any Old Testament book, we find that we're always being told something about how the Lord God works at three different levels. At the top level, the, the main theme running through both the Old Testament and the New Testament is what God has done to rescue mankind from the effects of the fall. And if we were to write a tagline for that level of meaning, if we wanted a summary to describe it, a good tagline would be, the Lord's anointed will reign. And uh, we've already seen how the reign of Jesus is anticipated in the reign and the life of David. Then at the second level, we're being told about God's special purposes for Israel. And the idea here is that the way that God deals with his old covenant people in the Old Testament is full of instruction for the way that God deals with his new covenant people today, the church. And at this level, I think a good summary, a good tagline might be, God is saving a people for himself. Then at the third level, we're sometimes given an insight into the way that God deals with individuals. And of course, it's this third level of meaning that we're looking at in chapter 20. And uh, the question that our passage is answering this morning is this. What do friendships look like for the covenant people of God? And we're going to try and answer that in the next few minutes under three headings, helpfully, each one beginning with the letter P. So first we're going to look at the priority of friendship. Because God's design for human beings is that all of us should have meaningful and encouraging friendships. Then second, we're going to look at the pattern of friendship that we find 
in 1 Samuel chapter 20 and the relationship between David and Jonathan. And then third, I want us to see that the power of friendship is in Jesus. And I want to show you why that is true and the difference that Jesus makes in our friendship. So firstly then, the priority of friendship. Now, although this is the most famous friendship in the Old Testament, chapter 20 is actually the only record we have of any conversation between David and Jonathan. Uh, And when they say their farewells to one another at the end of the chapter, apart from one very, very brief meeting, again in chapter 23, they never see each other again. So if we want to understand why this friendship has stimulated so much interest and what it's got to say to us, chapter 20 is the place to be. Now the first thing we notice is that their friendship is not presented to us in a vacuum. Uh, It develops in the context, (coughs) excuse me, of Saul's growing hatred of David. Now last week we saw that uh, in chapters 18 and 19 Saul tries to kill David no less than six times. And so here in verse 1 of chapter 20 we find David on the run from Saul and complaining to Jonathan what have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he's trying to take my life? Now, as the reader, we know that the the reason for Saul's behaviour is that Saul is under the judgement of God. So, just turn back a couple of pages to chapter 16 and verse 14. Chapter 16 and verse 14 where we see that the situation is that Saul has disobeyed the word of God and therefore God has decreed that the kingdom will be taken from Saul and given to David instead. Saul has shown no sign of repentance and in verse 14, can we all see verse 14 in our Bibles? In verse 14, we read these very, very chilling words. Now, the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Now, people are often troubled by that, and we've already said something about it in our Bible study home groups. But you see, that verse is reminding us that evil spirits are under God's control. God isn't the origin of evil spirits. They've chosen to rebel against him. But God does sometimes use evil spirits to accomplish a greater good. And here, the effect of the evil spirit on Saul is that the evil which began by his disobedience to the word of God goes on escalating and multiplying in his life, leading ultimately to Saul's death on Mount Gilboa. And that, of course, 
opens the way for David to become king. There are two important applications for us this morning. The first is that once I start to rebel against the the light which God gives me in his word, I cannot actually predict or control where that's going to end. If I start saying to myself, this Christian lifestyle is actually too hard, and I start living for myself, my career, my life, my family, my kingdom, I mustn't be surprised if God radically rewrites the agenda and that I've got some very painful lessons to learn about who really is the Lord. How does that happen? Occasionally, like Saul, it begins with a decisive turning away from God and everybody can see it. But more often it starts quietly uh, as a person begins to drift slowly away from God and allows the world to pull them into its mould. So you see, Saul is given to us in the Bible as a warning not to trifle with the privileges we have to hear God speaking to us through his word, the Bible. That's the first application. The second application is that as we watch Saul moving further and further away from the Lord, so we see that he becomes increasingly isolated from those around him until in the end Saul is friendless. That reminds us, you see, that sin separates. Those of us who are doing the marriage course at the moment have heard Paul Tripp saying, sin is antisocial in its fundamental form. Sin separates us from God. It separates us from other people. And the point that the writer of 1 Samuel is making, as we watch Saul's life gradually fall apart, is that without friends, we're actually less than fully human. So if you cast your mind back to the account of creation in Genesis, I'm sure you'll remember that all the way through that account, every time God makes something, he says it's good. And then completely unexpectedly, we're told, the Lord God said it is not good for the man to be alone. Now think about the significance of that statement with me for just a moment. Because that was before the fall. When God said that, nobody had sinned. But something is not good. What does that mean? Well, one of the things that it means is that from God's perspective, paradise wasn't perfect without deep human friendship. And that's why the first requirement for any successful marriage is friendship. Jonathan Edwards was, I think, the greatest Christian thinker in the 18th century. And commenting on that passage of Genesis, Jonathan Edwards says this, 
God made us to need others beside himself. Now people have difficulty with that. Because we've been taught that if we know God personally, we've got everything that we need. And yet, perhaps it's not quite so surprising as we might think, because God is three persons in a permanent, everlasting relationship of friendship. And you and I are made in his image. So for God's image bearers, human friendship is a priority. What a tragedy that our generation knows so little about it. So let's turn our attention now to 1 Samuel 20 and look carefully at the pattern of friendship. We've seen it's a priority. Let's look at the pattern. This is where we're finding the treasure in the text. Because the passage highlights three aspects of the friendship between David and Jonathan which still hold true for every relationship that can actually be called a friendship. The first is constancy. Constancy. Three times in the chapter we find David and Jonathan asking one another for kindness. So just notice this in verse 8. David says to Jonathan, show kindness to your servant. Then in verse 14, Jonathan asks David to show him unfailing kindness. And then in verse 15, Jonathan asks David not to cut off his kindness from his family. Now what are they really asking for? In our culture... That kindness is a sort of rather strange word, isn't it? That it, it sort of conjures up an image of, of gentleness uh, or even weakness. And I suggest that secretly today, most men would run a mile rather than hear themselves being described as kind. Uh, when Matthew is hiring a chairman for his company... I wonder whether kindness will be one one of the qualities that he's looking for. Uh, Most people don't hire on the basis of kindness, but perhaps they should, because the word in the original appears 250 times in the Old Testament, and on nearly every occasion, it's describing God himself. And the quality that it's describing, listen to this, is the committed love and faithfulness which God shows to all people who are in a covenant relationship with him. In other words, it's talking about God's constancy. And it teaches us that in spite of our disobedience and our unreliability, the Lord is consistent. He is dependable that he always keeps his promises. And more than that, it teaches us that God builds his kingdom by showing his kindness and his constancy to undeserving sinners like me and like you. And so here, in chapter 20, despite the intense pressure from Saul and all of Saul's 
scheming to hold on to his earthly kingdom, for David and Jonathan, the covenant constancy of God is an infinitely greater reality which becomes the foundation for their friendship. I think the verse that gets this perhaps best of all is verse 4. See, David has come to his friend in real need. He's fearing for his life. Now notice what Jonathan says in verse 4. He says, whatever you want me to do, I'll do for you. There are no conditions. There are no ifs or buts or maybes. No delays. His friend is in need and Jonathan is in a position to help. And as far as Jonathan's concerned, there is only one response. Whatever you want me to do for you, I'll do. Now that is so unusual today, isn't it? I think the culture screams at us not to be like this. It says to us, that kind of commitment is a distraction, you'll lose focus, you haven't got time to do it, you've already got more than enough on your plate. But the Bible says that it's part of what it means to be made in the image of God and it is absolutely essential to any true friendship. So that's the first quality in this pattern. The second essential aspect of true friendship that we learn from David and Jonathan is vulnerability. Vulnerability. Or if you prefer, complete openness. Now again, we need to look at the text to see what this really means. Do you remember last week in chapter 18, verse 4, we saw Jonathan not only gave David his robe, his princely robe, but he also gave him his sword. And we said that uh, what Jonathan was doing was saying to David, I'm willing to become radically vulnerable to you, even to the point of death. And uh, you think about it, Jonathan's action there points forward to the submission that's required of all believers to the true Messiah, to the Lord Jesus. But on a purely human level, it's also saying something about their complete openness with one another as friends. A willingness to let each other see their deepest feelings. So come with me to the end of chapter 20. 1 Samuel chapter 20, end of the chapter. By this point, uh, Jonathan has finally realised that his father actually does want to kill David and that David must flee. Now look at the description of their parting in verse 41. David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. They kissed each other and wept together but David wept the most. David the giant killer. David the superhero. Completely vulnerable before his friend. 
But it's really important for us to see that this vulnerability isn't kind of a gratuitous display of emotion. It's actually got a spiritual function. In the case of David and Jonathan, it's an expression of their submission to what they now know to be the plan and the will of God, which is that David, as God's anointed king, needs to go. He needs to be separated from Jonathan so that he can eventually come onto the throne, not be killed by Saul in the meantime. But what about us? What about you and me? When we come to the New Testament, we find that vulnerability is a vital ingredient in any true Christian friendship and it's got a seriously important spiritual purpose. Keep a finger in 1 Samuel, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3 in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13. Now the question is this, what does Christian friendship look like to the writer of Hebrews. Verse 13. Let's wait till we're all there. Hebrews 3, verse 13. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. In other words, because my sin is so deceitful, it means I'm often unable to see it for myself. That's what it means. So in a Christian friendship, I make myself vulnerable to the other person and I give them permission (coughs) to show me what's wrong with me. The point is I can't see my own sin always, but you can. And so I ask you, as my friend, to show me, gently, I hope, so that I can deal with it and I am not hardened by it. So have you got the picture? Christian friendship is all about constancy and vulnerability. And I absolutely love the way that Tim Keller summarises these two ideas. He does it superbly. He puts it like this. He says, friends let you in, but they never let you down. And I like that. I think that's a brilliant description of true friendship. It's a great summary of the friendship between David and Jonathan. Friends let you in. Vulnerability. I let you see me. And they never let you down. Constancy. But there is a third essential ingredient in every friendship. And that is sympathy. Sympathy. Now when you and I hear the word sympathy, we, we think about feeling sorry for somebody. So uh, a relative dies and you send flowers and a card to the family saying how sorry you are what we kind of understand by the word sympathy. But the word sympathy has another meaning. And uh, in a Christian friendship, sympathy means having the same passion. Um, It's the Italian word, I'll try and say this with an Italian accent, 
simpatico. How's that? In chapter 18, we saw that David and Jonathan were one in spirit. That doesn't mean they felt sorry for each other. It means that they really cared about the same thing. You see, you're not necessarily friends with someone just because you've had the same experience or even just because you believe the same things. But rather because you both really care about it. What does that mean? In his book, uh, The Four Loves, C.S. Lewis says that the essence of friendship is the exclamation, you two, I thought I was the only one. So there you are, you're talking to someone, uh, you don't know them very well, and they say, I've read all of those books too. And you say, you have? Or you say, that happened to me too when I was a child. And they say, it did. When you find yourself having that sort of conversation with somebody, it means you've got the possibility for a really good friendship. And I guess of those three essential ingredients in friendship, it's the odd one out. Because we can all work on our constancy. We can all work on our vulnerability. But with sympathy, you've actually got to find it. So, friends, in our friendship-starved culture, how do you make friends? I suppose the simple answer is that you find someone with whom you share a common passion and then you bring lots of constancy and lots of vulnerability to it. And I think that's true but it's a little bit simplistic. Because none of us have been trained in constancy or vulnerability, and I think if we're honest, we'd all have to say we're not terribly good at it. We're conditioned not to be like that, not to let people in, not to be constant. So, where are we going to find the power to put this into practice? We're going to spend the last couple of minutes thinking about the power of friendship. So come back to 1 Samuel 20, because twice in the chapter, uh, we're told that David and Jonathan believed that their friendship had eternal significance. Look at verse 42. Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, for we've sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord saying, the Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. Now what on earth are we to make of that? Face value is actually a bit odd because as we carry on through the story we know that both Jonathan and David die. So their earthly friendship didn't actually last forever. But what we can say is that because Jonathan helped David to escape from his father Saul, David's reign was established 
And David was able to have a large family. And what came out of that? Well, of course, in the New Testament, we're told that many centuries later, the Lord Jesus was born in David's line. So what is all of that telling us about the power of friendship? Well, the night before he died, Jesus says something extraordinary to the disciples. It's our last cross-reference, but I would like you to look at it. Won't you please turn to Gospel of John, chapter 15. Gospel of John, chapter 15. And verse 12. This is Jesus talking to the disciples. Gospel of John. Wait till we're all there. Gospel of John, chapter 15, verse 12. Jesus says, My command is this, Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command. Love each other. I wonder if you can see what's going on there. The good news of the Gospel is that it offers us friendship with God. That's where all true friendship begins. But how is that friendship with God even possible? What makes it possible is that Jesus is the ultimate friend. So just think about this with me as we close. No one has ever shown more constancy than Jesus. Do you remember Garden of Gethsemane? He was in agony, wasn't he, over the suffering that lay before him. We saw that earlier this year. But Jesus didn't turn away. He was faithful. He was perfectly constant for us. And what about vulnerability? You see, Jesus hasn't just opened his arms in friendship for us. His arms were nailed open for us on the cross. And why did he do that? He did it so that we might enjoy friendship with God and friendship with each other. Which means that in every true Christian friendship, The sympathy, the passion that we have in common is Jesus himself. Now, how does that work in practice? What does it mean for Jesus to be the common passion in our friendships? 
Well, we began this morning with C.S. Lewis, and I'm going to give the last word to him this morning. I'm going to ask Matthew to put a quotation up on the screen. And this explains how having Jesus as the common passion in our friendships works. He writes this. Christ who said to his disciples, you have not chosen me, but I've chosen you. Those are the words we just read in John 15. Can truly say to every group of Christian friends, you have not chosen one another, but I have chosen you for one another. The friendship is not a reward for our good taste, in finding one another out. No, it is the instrument by which God reveals to each the beauties of all the others. They are no greater than the beauties of a thousand other people, but by friendship, God opens our eyes to see them. They are, like all beauties, derived from God. Now listen to this. And then in a good friendship, increased by him through the friendship itself. So that the friendship is his instrument for creating as well as revealing. End quote. Now you see, that is why C.S. Lewis says friendship is the greatest happiness in life. So, St. Barnabas, let's remember that Christ has chosen us for one another. Let's thank him for our friendships and not take them for granted. Let's be alive to the fact that God uses friendship as the means of revealing and actually increasing the graces that he's given to each one of us. And let's learn to be better friends for one another, remembering that a good friend is someone who lets you in, that means they're open and vulnerable with you, and they never let you down. That means they're always faithful to you, following the example of the ultimate friend, our Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we stand amazed that you sent Jesus to be the ultimate friend for us so that we might enjoy friendship with you. Please open our eyes to see the importance of friendship and move us to make the time and the effort to nurture the friendships you've chosen for us we might see something of the beauty of Jesus in one another and be concerned to strengthen one another to become daily more like him.
for it is in his name that we ask it. Amen.